Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. You can view the live stream on Facebook at Mother Miriam Live. Now, here's Mother Miriam. Good morning, beloved family. How are you? I pray that you're well. I pray that you had a magnificent Holy Easter week and a beautiful Divine Mercy Sunday yesterday. Um, And I pray that those of you who went to Mass yesterday, which should be every single Catholic, um, uh, well, everyone in the world should be Catholic, so it should be everybody, um, that you understood and understand the magnificence of the mercy of God. He said to St. Faustina that he wanted the world to know that mercy is his greatest attribute and asked for the Sunday after Easter, which would be low Sunday in the extraordinary form. Um, uh, The first Sunday after Easter should be Divine Mercy Sunday where he would pour out his mercy on everyone uh, that attended Mass and that received communion and that went to confession. Um, I don't think you have to be a confession on, on yesterday, just you needed to receive communion in a state of grace and go to confession reasonably, maybe just before or even after, but you needed to receive communion in a state of grace. And in that instance, uh, not only would all your sins be forgiven, but all the temporal punishment for your sins be forgiven. So you walk out of Mass ready to go straight to heaven, no purgatory. And the first sin you commit is uh, is the first a sin in God's eyes. And if you do not make sufficient reparation, um, then uh, you would have purgatory to to work that off in. Um, it's a very difficult for a Protestant mindset to understand that Jesus paid the price for our sins. Um, and uh, on the cross, uh, he did all that was necessary. Um, so when we're baptized, we're newborn babes in Christ. And whatever sins we commit, that we're, for which we're forgiven, we receive a penance, not in order to be forgiven, but because we have been forgiven. But we need, like Zacchaeus, who was forgiven, he said, I'll repay whatever I've taken from people fourfold. We need to repair the temporal effects of our sin. I've used the example of, of Mrs. Smith, your little son goes into the yard, her yard, which she wasn't supposed to go into and plays baseball and the ball goes through Mrs. Smith's window and you've raised a good boy. So little Johnny goes to Mrs. Smith and say, Mrs. Smith, I shouldn't have been pray- playing in your yard and it was an accident. The ball went through your window. I'm really sorry. And Mrs. Smith's very impressed with your little Johnny and she says, it's okay, Johnny. Thank you for telling me. I forgive you and don't worry. So Johnny comes home and he says, Mom, Dad, um, tells you the story. But Mrs. Smith said she forgave me. So okay. And the mother and father should say, Okay, good for you, Johnny. But 
and if you don't give Johnny away, mowing the lawn, running errands, whatever it is, to earn back the money uh, to pay Mrs. Smith for the window, he will never understand that everything he does for good or ill affects everyone. He will never understand the choice and responsibility of his actions. He is forgiven. And because he's forgiven, he needs to show his sincerity and not make Mrs. Smith or anyone else pay for his disobedience. He needs to earn the money to pay back Mrs. Smith. The forgiveness is free. He doesn't have to repay the window to be forgiven. It's free. Same with us. We sin against one another and against an almighty God. Uh, David, King David, said in the Psalms, against thee, thee alone, have I sinned and not done what's evil in thy sight. Every single sin is against God. Every single sin. And many of our sins against, or most of them, against one another as well. <clears throat> so Jesus paid the price by his death uh, for all the sins that separated us from God. But we need to make we need now to earn the money to pay back Mrs. Smith the window. We need to make repairs, reparation, reparation for our sins. And that's when the, we go to confession and the priest gives us penance. Again, it's not in order that we be forgiven. It's because we have been forgiven by Christ's death on the cross. We have been restored to God. Um, but if we are truly sincere and repentant, we need to restore the earthly damage that we have done to one another. And that's what the penance is for. And I consider it a tremendous um, gift that by my following the priest's um, uh, instructions for my penance, that I can make that reparation. Sometimes I... I confess sins, and he says, okay, pray three Hail Marys. And I said, oh, Father, did you hear what I just said to you? But I have to trust that that's God's judgment of my sins, and because I would pray 200 Hail Marys. Um, and some don't understand why a Hail Mary is um, even reparation for sin. But every sin we commit is against God. And so... Um, what is against him is against Christ, his son, and is against the mother who is also offended. So by praying Hail Marys, we make restitution. We repair the temporal damage that is done uh, to our Lord and our mother by our sins. If we've stolen money, we need to repay it. Um, if we've... Uh, sinned against someone, we need to make it right. So uh, yesterday, the unfathomable mercy of God cleared those who went to Mass, who wanted to gain the plenary, that means full indulgence, who received communion in a state of grace, and who went to communion, confession, or will go uh, soon, uh, but yet received in a state of grace, um, there's nothing else required. Uh, God will simply have removed from you all punishment from sin. Uh, 
So if you would have a million years in purgatory, uh, as of yesterday, you had zero, absolutely zero, straight to heaven. Now, what we do with our lives from that point, we might build up reparation again. We don't have to, though. We don't have to sin. God's grace is sufficient for us. We don't have to make that choice. A very, very great day, beloved. Um, So what I'd like to do, um, I always make a decision. Should I talk about what's going on in the world and all the threats that are upon us? But you can read the news as well as I. And the most important thing for us to do is to live our faith. And we cannot live a faith that we do not know. And we cannot worship a God that we do not know. So many people, so many Catholics, can teach the faith. Um, And yet, when trials come, they act as if God doesn't exist. Or that he's not the God who he is. That he's a weak God of their own choosing. We are up to um, the divine attributes in the Catechism Explained, and we have covered the first few, but it's been quite a while since we were in this together. So let me just sum up um, the beginning of this. And uh, Reverend Sparago, who has written the commentary on the Council of Trent, which is what the Catechism Explained is, says, we ascribe to God various attributes because the unity of the divine perfection is reflected in different ways in creatures. The Son, that's a creature, as St. Francis of Assisi called him, called the Son, the Son is sometimes red, sometimes yellow, or a palish white. It is the mists around the earth that cause the variety in it as it is seen by us. The attributes of God are therefore various manifestations of God's one and indivisible perfection or essence. In God, they are all one and the same. His goodness is the same as his justice, his wisdom as his power, and his power as his eternity, etc. The divine attributes are also identical with God himself. God is wisdom, power, eternity, etc., God is a being of the most perfect and absolute simplicity. There is no sort of multiplicity or obscurity in him. There is no sort of division between his attributes. It is from our understanding that the distinction between them arises. In created things, it is quite different. They possess attributes which are really distinct from each other. The attributes of God may be divided into those which belong to God's essence, those that belong to his understanding, and those that belong to his will. His essence, his understanding, and his will. The attributes of the divine essence are omnipresence, eternity, immutability. Those that belong to his understanding are omniscience, perfect wisdom, etc., Those that belong to his will are omnipotence, goodness, holiness, justice, truth, and faithfulness. We could spend a day, a whole day on every one of those attributes, beloved. But uh, we'll continue as soon as we come back from the break and take your calls and your emails at the second break. Be right back. 
Have you ever dialogued with someone who espouses relativism, which says there is no truth or it might be true for you, but not for me? It's pretty frustrating. Deep down, we know these claims are false, but we often don't know why. Here's the reason. To say there is no truth is a contradiction. The assertion is tantamount to saying it's true that there is no truth, plain absurdity. Now the other position, there is no absolute truth, just truth relative to the individual set of beliefs, is problematic as well. The usage of the verb is implies an assertion about the objective order of things. It's the same thing as saying it's absolutely true that there is no absolute truth, which of course is a contradiction. No matter how the relativist slices the pie, he ends up with a contradiction, making relativism an unreasonable worldview. I'm Carlo Broussard with the ready reason for Catholic Answers, catholic.com. Hello, beloved. This is Mother Miriam, host of Mother Miriam Live. Like the Catholic Current and the many other programs that originate from the Station of the Cross, Divine Mercy in My Soul is all about the messages that Jesus revealed to St. Faustina. It is aired every Sunday morning at 11 Eastern and Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Or you can listen anytime to Divine Mercy in My Soul on the iCatholic Radio mobile app. Keep up to date with the shows we bring you each day on the Station of the Cross by viewing our programming grid on our website, thestationofthecross.com, and on our iCatholic Radio app. Just click the menu icon in the top left portion of our app and select the link to our programming grid. That's at thestationofthecross.com and on our free iCatholic Radio app for Android and Apple mobile devices. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. I'm thrilled to be with you. Um, we are in Paschal Tide, which begins um, Easter and lasts right through Pentecost. It's an exciting, beautiful, beautiful time of the year. And um, I'm thrilled to be that we could walk through it together. We're back now to the Catechism Explained, and we're speaking of the divine attributes of God. Um, because our answer to every issue in life, every single problem we have, is knowing who God is and who we are in relationship to him. That's it. That's what the whole scripture is about, to know God in ourselves. And any um, program of spiritual growth or consecration or any uh, any path we are on to, to spiritual growth is to know ourselves. Uh, seems self-centered, but it's not. If we know ourselves in relationship to God, then our problems are solved because we know that we're weak and we're stupid, <laughs> we're ignorant, we're fallen. But God is perfect in his ways and his love is beyond anything we can imagine and so is his mercy. So it's important to know who God is. And the first attribute is that God is eternal. That is, he always was, he is, 
and ever will be. I'm tempted to read through the description of each of these attributes, but we have already. So let me just announce them. And when we get to the point where we were, where we left off, I'll, I'll read them in more depth. So number one, God is eternal. He didn't begin. There was no beginning. The first verse in Genesis says, in the beginning, God was. What is the beginning? There is no beginning. He always was. He always was. And someone says, well, he had to start. No, he didn't have to start. We think of God uh, in the only terms we know, which is finite terms, which is us. We had to start. God didn't. Well, how could he always exist? He had to come from somewhere. No, he didn't have to come from somewhere. If he did, then someone would have had to have made God, and that, then that would have been God. No, he always was. He is, and he ever will be. Secondly, he's omnipresent. That is, he is everywhere, in every place, always. There's no place, no place where God is not. Let's see now. Um, thirdly, God is immutable. That means, that means he ever remains the same. He's unchangeable. He is the same, Scripture says, yesterday, today, and forever. God is immutable, unchangeable. He ever remains the same. The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. And some people say, well, the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath. The God of the New Testament is a God of love. There's only one God. And it's the God of the Old Testament that sent his son to die for us. He is a God of love. Number four, he's omniscient, meaning he knows all things. The past, the present, and the future and our inmost thoughts. There's nothing that God doesn't know. Absolutely nothing. Now we are where we left off. Number five, God is supremely wise. He knows how to direct everything for the best in order to carry out his designs. I'm going to repeat that because some people are going through horrible trials right now and they either lose sight of this or begin to doubt it. God is supremely wise. He knows how to direct everything for the best in order to carry out his designs. The design at which God aims is nothing else than his own glory and the good of his creatures. If the farmer wishes for a good harvest, he plows his field, manicures it, sows good seed, etc. Such a farmer is a wise man because he chooses the means best qualified to attain his end. God acts in an exactly similar way. He prepared the world for the coming of the Redeemer by the call of Abraham, the sending of the prophets. The wisdom of God shows itself in the life of individuals, such as Joseph of Egypt, of Moses, of St. Paul, and also in the history of nations and kingdoms. The wisdom of God shows itself especially in the way in which God brings good out of evil. The life of the patriarch Joseph is an excellent example of this. Probably, beloved, my favorite example. God's ways are not our ways, or his thoughts are thoughts. Man proposes and God disposes. A man inexperienced in war would be puzzled by the orders issued by the general, 
and would not be able to understand how they all could tend to ensure victory. We shall understand God's ways in heaven, but we cannot understand them here. A child saw how the thorns tore away little pieces from the fleece of a sheep and wanted to remove the thorns. Presently, the child saw how the singing birds collected the bits of wool to make their nests and no longer wished to remove the thorns. Many men are like this child. The wisdom of God is also displayed in this, that God makes use of the most unlikely means for his own honor. St. Paul says, the weak things of this world God has chosen to confound the strong. God chose the small and despised land of Palestine as the cradle of Christianity. He chose a poor maiden to be the mother of God and a poor carpenter to be his foster father. He chose poor, ignorant fishermen to preach the gospel and spread it all over the earth. He often uses the most improbable means in helping his friends. St. Felix of Nola, when flying from his persecutors, took refuge in a hotel in a rock. A spider came and spun its web at the mouth of the cave, and his pursuers, on seeing this, concluded he could not be inside. I can't, I love these stories. Here's another. A poor woman was summoned to pay some money which had already been paid by her husband, who was dead. She searched everywhere for the receipt, but in vain. The very morning when she had to appear before the court, a cockchafer flew in, I guess that's a sort of bird, flew in at the window and behind a press. One of the children wanted to get it, so the mother moved the press a little to reach it. And from behind the press, the long-sought receipt fell to the ground. This was God's answer to the poor widow's prayers. It is God's law that all works done for God should meet with difficulties and hindrances. A work that begins with brilliant promise, St. Philip Neri used to say, has not God for its author and protector. And lastly, the wisdom of God shows itself in directing the course of the world to carry out his purpose. All things in the world have a mutual relationship to one another. If a man moves or displaces a single wheel in a watch, the watch stops. So if anything were altered in the arrangement of the world, all things would be confused. In other words, without the birds, the insects would soon destroy all vegetation. So the animals that serve us for food increase rapidly, while the beasts of prey breed but slowly. Nothing in the world is useless. The alternations of sunshine and rain, summer and winter, day and night, all serve some useful end. How useful is the uneven distribution of wealth, of the talents of men, etc. The smallest insect has its usefulness in the world. The butterfly going from flower to flower carries it with fertilizing pollen. Even the destructive agencies in the world 
storms, the earthquakes. And floods serve God's purposes and are attended by him to help men to save their souls. How wonderful, too, is the orderly course of the heavenly bodies, the movement of the earth around the sun, the, and of the moon around the earth, serve to make this world a pleasant habitation for man. The beautiful arrangement of the universe compels us to recognize the wisdom and prudence of him who has created it. How great are thy works, O Lord! Thou hast made all things in wisdom. The earth is filled with thy riches. Ah, beloved, this is so one. Don't you wish everything could just be absorbed into your brain and stay there? More is absorbed than we know. And we don't have to remember all these things specifically, but we get to know them. We know who God is. We know that he's too wise to make a mistake. He's too powerful. He's too loving. He's perfect in his ways. Number six, God is almighty. That is, he can do all that he wills. And, by, and that, by a mere act of his will, God can do all things which appear to men impossible, such as the preservation of the three young men in the midst of the fiery furnace of Babylon. A thousand similar wonders occurred in the time of the persecutions of the Christians. Our Lord says, with God, nothing is impossible. With God, how many things are impossible, beloved? Nothing. Nothing is impossible. Not one thing. The scriptures say he cannot deny himself. That's possible. He cannot deny himself. But that never, never ever changes. Yet God cannot do that which is in contradiction with his own perfections. He cannot lie. He cannot deceive. God could always have done more wonderful works than he has done. He could have created a more beautiful world than this and more creatures than he has actually made. When any of the creatures that God has made Let me see here. When any of the creatures that God has made desires to do anything, he can only make use of the things that God has made and in accordance with the laws that God has established. But God is bound by no laws save those of his own infinite goodness and truth. He has only to will a thing and what he wills happens at once. He spoke, and the heavens were created. He commanded, and they were created. Psalm 148. It's beautiful, dear ones. I'm sorry. I know I probably look a bit tired. I am. i got to get out of this being tired. I'm so sorry. But we're awake, and we will take your calls, your texts, your e Not your texts. I think we're not able to take them anymore. But we're able to take your calls and emails toll-free with anything whatsoever on your heart. You may call or email anonymously as well. It's not an issue. The number toll-free is 1-877-511-5483 or email at mother at thestationofthecross.com. We'll be right back. 
Franciscan Media's Saint of the Day for April 17th. Today we celebrate Saint Benedict Joseph Lebray. Born in 1748, Benedict Joseph Lebray decided at an early age that he would live an austere life as a member of a religious community. After several communities rejected him, he decided to become a permanent pilgrim. He traveled on foot from church to church and shrine to shrine throughout Western Europe. Dressed in simple clothes, he begged for food and found overnight lodging in hostels and in people's homes. In his mid-twenties, Benedict made his way to Rome. For a time, he lived and slept among the ruins in the Colosseum and spent his days visiting churches in the Eternal City, spending time before the Blessed Sacrament. He became known as the poor man of the 40 hours devotion and the beggar of Rome. Illness finally forced Benedict to put a halt to his pilgrimages. During Holy Week of 1783, it was clear that he was near death. He died of malnutrition at age 35 on the day before Holy Thursday. Benedict Joseph Lebray was canonized in 1881 and named patron saint of the homeless. There's more about the saints along with inspiration and Catholic resources at our website, saintoftheday.org. From Franciscan Media, this has been Saint of the Day. I worked in pro baseball for a long time, and we play on Sundays. And it was an easy excuse. I took the easy out and just didn't go to Mass. Got caught up on that whole selfishness, that whole, you know, um, I can do it all. The times when I was struggling were the times I needed God the most. And now that uh, I've come back and accepted God, my world has completely changed. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit catholicscomehome.org today. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. This is our half hour all to ourselves. Our lines are wide open, and you are welcome to call in with anything on your heart whatsoever. Toll free, 1-877-511-5483 or email at mother at the station of the cross.com. We began a um, bit of a lengthy email uh, last week from Joe, and I'm going to continue it. I'll read the whole thing since it's been several days since we've been at it. I'll read the whole thing through. Uh, I'll read it as quickly as I can because we've commented about, excuse me, halfway through. Joe says, Dear Mother Miriam, I'm angry at my wife for the way she handled... Oops, now I have hiccups. I'm angry at my wife for the way that she handled the situation with my mother, who was 83, and her partner, Adam, uh, who was 85. I'm not sure how to make this short. Forgive me if it seems lengthy. Well, it is lengthy. Let me do this quickly. Back in 2008, my father passed away. My dad, while doing the best he could, was an alcoholic, and their marriage was kind of dysfunctional. But I'll give them credit for not taking the easy way out. After his passing, my mom moved up near where we lived, 
and within a few years, she met a wonderful man named Adam. He was pretty much everything my dad was not for my mom. He treated her like a queen. And for the first time in a long time, I saw that she was finally happy in a relate in a relationship. Unfortunately, he was non-Catholic. He was Episcopal and a divorcee. And for various financial reasons, my mom could not marry again. However, short of an official marriage, they had a commitment ceremony. Well, there's no such thing as a commitment ceremony that would make a man and woman, that would make it legitimate for a man and woman to live together. Um, They had a commitment ceremony officiated by one of Adam's ministers, which means not Catholic, and are by all accounts married. They are by no accounts married. Um, Not all, none, they are not married. Um, Joe says, I have no idea, nor do I ever want to even know if they've ever slept together. However, they both love each other faithfully. Well, they don't love each other enough uh, to cause each other to be in such grave sin and on their way to hell. That's not love. That's selfish love. That's not true love for the other soul. He says, they both love each other faithfully, take great care of each other in their old age, and given my mom's various breathing-slash-heart ailments, there have probably been a few times where Adam literally saved my mom's life just by being there to take her to the hospital during a few emergencies. My wife has been after me to tell my mom that she's living in sin and their souls are in mortal peril as a result. And by me not warning her, that will be on my soul as well. Your wife is right, Joe. Your wife is absolutely right. At first, Joe says, I was just afraid to tell my mom, especially since Adam takes good care of her, that I would never be able to do, not to mention the life-saving efforts he's provided. But see, Joe, that's the problem with so many people. You're focused on her temporary happiness and temporary care, not her eternal soul. Joe says, as mentioned above, I have no idea of their activities, so I don't know if they've sinned in that way. But they're sinning and living together, Joe. For all I know, their relationship is one of mutual company. Another part of me feels like the pot calling the kettle black since my wife and I lived together in sin before we were married. So how can I call another out for the same thing that my mother ironically was against in the beginning? The reason you can call her out, Joe, um, uh, that you can call your mom out is because you got out of sin into a right relationship with God and repented. And if you love your mom, um, you will not refrain from telling her she's on her way to an eternal uh, eternity without Christ um, because you were once yourself. That's not love. That's, that's self-centered, Joe. And Joe says, both my wife and I have repented for that sin. Well, that's good, but your mother needs to as well. But I feel extremely hypocritical. Again, I don't know if anything goes on in their bedroom. The other issue that's come up is that when Adam has attended Catholic Mass with my mom, they rotate which denomination they attend. No, they don't. The Catholic Church is not a denomination. It is the church Christ attended. Uh, established rather, sorry. Um, Joe receives communion. 
At first, I thought it was just a misunderstanding and ignorance of Catholic teachings. When I approached him about this last year, to let him respectfully know that he's not allowed to receive communion unless he's in full communion with the Catholic Church, he said that he asked a Catholic deacon, and that deacon said it was no big deal. My jaw nearly dropped. Well, shame on that deacon, and that deacon will be responsible, but you are right, and you need to show... um, uh, you need to show Adam um, in the catechism where it is grave sin. <clears throat> Joe says, fast forward to yesterday as a remember- at a remembrance mass for my late father. Adam again went up for communion, and unfortunately, since he was helping my mom, he received it on one hand, which made it look irreverent. It was irreverent, and it was... Uh, grave sin in the manner he consumed it. My wife was so upset that she had to excuse herself. She then regained her composure, but then castigated me for not reproaching him in the middle of Mass receiving the Eucharist. No, the middle of the Mass is not the time. It's before you go to Mass that things have to be made clear and need to be made clear to the priest or whoever's distributing communion as well. Um, so your wife castigated you for not reproaching Adam in the middle of Mass for receiving the Eucharist, which I thought would cause more harm than good, especially by disrupting the Mass itself, to which my wife replied, well, Jesus overturned tables for less, and he didn't seem to care about upsetting people. Well, no, I think your wife is a little out of perspective here. Um, it's not the time to do that, and, and you're not going to Mass to overturn tables. Uh, She finally regained her composure, and we all went out to lunch together, my wife, my mom, Adam, my three young adult children, and myself. Toward the end of the lunch, a discussion got heated about the Catholic faith and morals, since my mom apparently did not think we we knew what goes on at some Catholic colleges. So my wife seemed to think this was the perfect opportunity to put her two cents worth in about Adam receiving communion and my mother and he living together. It's not two cents, Joe. You need to take it seriously. Your wife is right. Um, In the middle of the restaurant, needless to say, that went over like a lead balloon. Well, that was not the right way to do it. Then my wife then excused herself because she was getting even more excited. My daughter left in tears, leaving me, my crying mom, Adam, who was trying to comfort her, and my older son, my other son, had left earlier before this went down. No, it was not the way to go out to lunch. Absolutely not. If your wife was that upset, you probably should have canceled lunch. He says, I had asked Adam about his receiving communion, and it seemed the poor guy did try and do the right thing. He had stopped receiving communion after our discussion the year before. However, he said he had read a handout at church that he interpreted as allowing him to receive after all. I'm going to find out what he read, but I suspect he misinterpreted the following as being allowed to receive the Eucharist. Quote, we welcome our fellow Christians to this celebration of the Eucharist as our brothers and sisters. We pray that our common baptism and the action of the Holy Spirit in this Eucharist will draw us closer to one another and begin to dispel the sad divisions which separate us. Well, I don't blame him for... uh, believing that that lets him receive the Eucharist. That's what it's saying. Shame on whoever wrote that. That is against Catholic teaching. Uh, Terrible. Parish should be made aware of it, and it should be stricken from the bulletin. 
Adam says, I suspect this because he mentioned that he was baptized and confirmed, which is what he picked out of the statement allowing him to receive after all. I know that the rest of the USCCB statement states that you have to be in full communion, but I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that he made an honest mistake. Well, I don't know if it was an honest mistake, honest mistake or not, or if he read the the rest of it, but what the the paragraph you just quoted or he quoted is uh, not good, uh, and and would appear to give someone license. Um, um, let me see. Um, I also cannot fault him totally, since a Catholic deacon said it was okay. So there, there is that as well. Well, he needs to not. You need to not leave him in the hands of people that no longer have the faith. A Catholic deacon, um, the USCCB that writes confusing things. No, no, no. You need to tell him uh, this is not a popularity party. You need to tell him about the danger of his soul and your mom's soul. So this leads me back to my anger at my wife. You should not be angry with her, Joe. She's put up with this a long time. It's a sacrilege, and she is right. Um, And she cares more about the Eucharist than she does your mom or her partner. And she should, and you should as well. It's profaning the Blessed Sacrament. And so Adam says, so this leads me back to my anger at my wife. There may have been a time and a place to address these two issues. And I know my mom kind of opened herself up, but I don't think my wife had the right to completely give my mom a broadside and send a nuclear torpedo at poor Adam, who just happened to be nearby. Um, Joe, this has gone on for too long. And... um, it, it's, you know, it probably was the last straw. Uh, it wasn't prudent of your wife to do that, but uh, you have been irresponsible on this. You have, should have taken matters into your hands long before now and should do it now. The other fun mitigating factor, he says, that I know played into this is that my mom and wife have had a strained relationship to put it mildly, and it always seems to be a contest to see who can run to the center of the room to pull the pin of the grenade that's in the middle, and even more entertaining to see who else gets hit by the shrapnel. I cannot claim to be innocent either because I did have quote-unquote mommy issues that I've learned to deal with, so there is that. I have suggested to both of them to get together and finally hash things out. That's not a solution. They need to not hash things out. The, The teaching of the church needs to be written and plain, and your mom needs to make a choice whether she is wants to go to heaven or not, and whether she cares enough for this so-called partner uh, to tell him the truth. Both of them have told me, I will if she comes to me first, or something to that effect, so the chances of that are slim to none. But again, I'm extremely angry at my wife for how she behaved, but I don't want to muddle things any more than they are by making it seem like I'm siding with my mom over my wife. So I am looking for help and prayer. Sorry this letter was so long. Thank you for any wisdom. Yours in Christ, Joe. 
You're not side. Don't side with your mom or your wife. You have to side with Christ, Joe. You have to step up to the plate and be a man. You need to apologize to your wife for putting her through this abuse for so long. That's what it is. You've put her through this abuse by letting your mom and her so-called partner receive communion for so long and letting them live together without the truth being spoken. That's cowardly and it's abusive. And you have to step up to the plate and be a man and not put it between your wife and your mom. That's not. This is between you and your mom and her partner and God's truth for her soul. Joe, step up to the plate, apologize to your wife, and go deal with your mom and her partner together and bring them the teachings of the church and apologize to them that you have let this go on so long. There's the music for our break, beloved. We'll be back right after the break and um, take your calls and your emails. Hi, this is Jim Havens, co-founder of the National Men's March to Abolish Abortion and Rally for Personhood. Some truths are self-evident, some rights are unalienable. It is a scientific fact that life begins at conception fertilization. It is a foundational moral truth that we ought not murder innocent human beings. Every human being is a human person with a right to life and the equal protection of law according to the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Yet we have an ongoing daily mass murder of our little pre-born brothers and sisters. It's time for all men and women of goodwill to rise up together in the public square and say no more. Come join us in Albany, New York on Saturday, June 3rd. Men, let's go first and gather at 9 a.m. for the Men's March. Women, we need you to join us at 1045 a.m. for the Rally for Personhood outside of the New York State Capitol. We'll have some great speakers along with terrific opportunities for formation and fellowship before and after. Go to themensmarch.com for all the details. See you in Albany. We often talk about the worst case scenario. We say, well, it could be worse. What is the worst case scenario? There are a lot of scary ones in the news today, from ongoing conflicts in the Middle East to violence in urban centers near your city, the persecution of Christians everywhere. You've got tensions rising with North Korea. You've got the threat of nuclear weapons. But for Christians, the worst case scenario is to die in mortal sin, to leave this life outside God's friendship because we want reality on our terms. And God gives us what we really want forever. If Jesus is not the Lord of everything, he's the Lord of nothing. So let's ask him to keep us far from the lukewarmness that leads us to take our faith for granted. G.K. Chesterton once said that the best way to love something is to know it can be lost. I'm Patrick Coffin at patrickhoffin.media. Be a saint. What else is there? Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. This is our last segment. We have 10 minutes Our lines are open, and you're still welcome to call in uh, with anything on your heart. Uh, Toll free, 1-877-511-5483, or email at mother at thestationofthecross.com. We have Jim from Pennsylvania on the line. Hello, Jim. 
Hello, Mother Miriam. It's so good to hear from you and talk to you. Good to talk with you, Jim. God bless you, dear. Yeah, uh, an issue, a uh, question came up. I was listening to uh, Mother Angelica yesterday, and she said that on the way to, to Emmaus, the two disciples um, were, um, saw Jesus in the breaking of the bread. And so she yes. said, well, they must have been they must have been in the upper room with him. So I asked my two priests at church this morning, and they said that there was only 12 disciples in the apostles in the upper room. So one said that uh, he didn't know. The other said that he, they must have, Jesus must have inspired them, even though they had never been in the upper room. Uh, never seen the bread broken, that uh, he inspired them in such a way that they just recognized him. I don't know if he said he'd get back to me with further commentaries. As I said, well, I'll call Mother Miriam. <laughs> she might have an answer. Well, um, they, I think they invited Jesus into their home. It's Luke chapter 24, and I'd have to go to it to see exactly uh, the, the place they invited him, I, I, I don't personally understand that it was the upper room. But, um, you know, um, when Jesus was at the Last Supper, he took unleavened bread that would have been part of the final Passover of the Old Covenant and became the first mass of the New Covenant, and he took bread in his hand, and he said, this is my body, and bread obeyed and became his body. And he took wine, the wine of the Passover, and he said, this is my blood, and blood obeyed and became his blood. Just as when he said, let there be light, and there was, he creates by his word. And so that bread at the Passover became his body, and the wine his blood. So um, it's not difficult to understand that when they went into the house, whatever bread they had and served at the table, he broke it. And I, I think, yes, he performed that miracle, in, including their recognizing him in the breaking of the bread. He, he did that to show them who he was. Nobody, you know, we come to Mass and we don't uh, recognize in that way uh, the way the disciples did on the road to Emmaus. We don't recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread. We believe it. We believe in his church. We believe in that uh, the priest is an altus Christus, and when he says, this is my body over the bread, he's doing what Jesus asked him to do in remembrance of Jesus. Jesus is the one who's saying it through the priest. Jesus is the high priest and the victim. So, And God, again, creates by his word. He would have done the same uh, on the road to Demaeus with the disciples in their home. Um, it, 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 it was bread, and uh, the fact that they recognized him, that's why he stopped with them. He wanted to, them to see who he was, and I believe it was all by the power of his inspiration that they could recognize him in the breaking of the bread. If Judas or someone else was there, they may not have recognized him uh, at all, but I believe our Lord made himself known in the breaking of the bread.
Yeah, so this happened at their home on on the on the way to Emmaus. That was their right. home. He invi- they invited him into. His, the, into their that's home. what I understand. I think Luke twenty four says that. Okay, so it doesn't matter if it's a home or a picnic a picnic table, wherever. A picnic that's right. Shelter. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's uh, it's our Lord who. Um, who, yes, inspired them, enabled them to recognize him in the breaking of bread. Otherwise, it would have just been normal bread and a normal meal. Our, I believe our Lord did that, absolutely, that they would know who he was. Would you concede the fact that they had never seen it broken by, broken before by, by, Je- by Jesus? I would. Um, I, I, again, I'd have to go back and look at Luke 24, but um, I don't know. Uh, they were two of his disciples, um, and the scriptures think of speak of seventy plus disciples, but um, but not the apostles, as far as I know. And so the only ones, uh, as as you said earlier, that would have seen him break bread previously were. Not even the twelve in the upper room, but the eleven, you know. So, um, uh, no, I don't think they would have seen it before. I think that would have been their first miracle that they recognized him by his power in their hearts in the breaking of the bread. So it's just, it's, I mean, in other words, it would have been like if they had never seen him do it. It would have been like a, a priest. On the, on our altar, breaking the bread, and suddenly we don't see the priest anymore. We see Jesus. Well, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. And in fact, if we if if our if we saw what our faith, if we saw with our eyes what our faith understands, we wouldn't see the priest because it's Jesus who says, "This is my body," through the priest and the bread becomes him, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Absolutely. Absolutely, it becomes Christ. So he's given himself in the form of bread. Um, he doesn't become a, a little image of the full Christ as he was on earth. And it's his body and soul, blood and divinity, um, it's been said if he gave himself in the form of body and blood, we could be repulsed by that, you know, a beating heart. So he gives himself in the form of bread. And people say, but God is not bread. He's a man, Jesus. But he's not a man. He became a man. And he became bread for us. The God who is spirit, the triune God of Abraham, uh, is the one who in his unfathomable condescension became man for us through the Virgin Mary. Uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it was by, again, that same power um, that uh, he became our food, a further condescension. So if someone comes to Mass and the priest prays over the bread and bread becomes God, which it does, um, someone without faith won't see, won't recognize Jesus. They absolutely won't. And someone with faith 
doesn't necessarily, most people at Mass don't recognize Jesus. They know it's him. They believe it's him. And many people say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, because it still looks like bread, but it's no longer bread. It's just the accidents, the appearance that remain, uh, the appearance of bread and wine, but it's no longer bread and wine. And it doesn't contain God. It becomes God. The very substance is God. Very difficult for us uh, finite folks, Jim, to understand. But um, it's a miracle that God performs at every single Mass. And uh, he simply, when he was on the road to Emmaus, um, just simply, not so simply, miraculously, um, broke bread and by his Spirit, infused faith in their hearts, and they recognized him. Something like that. I think something like that. He inspired them in such a way that even though they had never seen it done before. Absolutely, Jim. Absolutely. God bless you, dear one. There's the music for the end of our program. We'll speak with you all tomorrow. God bless you.